Well, it's good to see you here this morning. I welcome you in the Lord's name. And we trust God will be with us as we meet together before Him. Uh, when we, in the last study I did, we began a, a series on character studies. We're looking at John the Baptist. We come back to him today. And so I want to read some verses once more in Luke chapter 1. So let's there, please, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, and we will read from the verse number 11 on through to 17. Verses that are very important, very familiar in the life of John. We read here of his earliest times, the promise of him to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then his birth uh, coming later in this chapter. But let's read in Luke 1, verse number 11. There appeared unto him that is unto Zacharias an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And God will bless the reading of these verses of His own Word. Now, John spent the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. In that way, he resembles our Savior. There's a parallel there. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, where we are, to the very last verse, verse number 80. Uh, notice what it says there, because apart from the details of his birth, and there are not many of them, there is only one reference in Scripture to John's early life, and it's found here in verse 80. It says, "...the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel." That's a reference to John, John the Baptist, and this is all we are shown about his uh, ministry, or about his, rather, about his early life. It says, the child grew, waxed strong in spirit, and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. If you compare that with chapter 2 of Luke, in verse number 40, you will see the parallel with Christ. It says, Luke 2, verse 40, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And so you find the very same words just about used of both John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ. That indicates an important truth. Well, many important truths in a sense, but one of them is that as a servant of God, John the Baptist was a very Christ-like person. We learn that from the, this particular parallel that we find here, that as children they grew and they developed, and there was about them something special, you might say. It was the presence of the Lord. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that was resting upon them even in those early days. 
And so all of those years are passed over in silence. I mean, from the time he was born, the few details that we have, right on through until he began his ministry. Nothing is known, nothing is shown to us. And that causes our minds to uh, maybe become inquisitive. What happened? What did John do? What happened during all those 30 years when he was in the wilderness, we're told, and he was far away from others, it would seem, and did not mingle in the public realm? It's a very, very mysterious uh, thing that we notice here, and certainly because we have inquisitive minds, we might start to wonder. The same is true of Christ. The only time that we read of Christ after His birth is when He was 12 years old, when He went up to the temple, as we find there in Luke chapter 2. And so all those years for both John the Baptist and Christ are passed over in silence. But this is the one thing we notice, that John was like Christ. Now, I'll come back to that a little later in the study today, but just keep that in mind. This is what we're shown. The same words are used of both of them, and it indicates to us, it introduces us, in a sense, to this thought that there was a likeness between John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ in a certain way, and we'll see that a little later. Now, he was the forerunner of Christ, this man John the Baptist. In the first study on him a couple of weeks ago, I took up all the time by considering the spiritual power that John had in his life and ministry as someone who was filled with the Holy Spirit. John, in that sense, stands in parallel with another person in the Bible, and that, of course, is that man, Bezaliel. We looked at him in Exodus 31, there's where we meet Bezaliel, and the parallel between the two is not only because they were both filled with the Spirit, that is, Bezaliel and John the Baptist, but because each man is the first person in Scripture, taking the Old Testament and the New Testament, of whom it is said that he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Bezaliel is the first person in the Old Testament. That's in Exodus 31. He's the man who built the tabernacle for the worship of God, the tabernacle that he prepared even as a forerunner of Moses, because Bezaliel was the forerunner of Moses. He prepared the tabernacle, and Moses was, in a very real way, a mediator between God and Israel. And in that tabernacle, worship was offered up, and all of the ceremonial system revolved around the tabernacle, in which everything pointed to Christ. That's the vital thing. All the details of the of the furniture, of the sacrifices, of the priesthood, of the form of worship, everything pointed to Christ. And it was Bezaliel, along with a few other men, but Bezaliel is the main man who was the builder of the tabernacle, and therefore he was a forerunner of Moses, and all that Moses did pointed to the Savior. And then we come to John the Baptist, and he's the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. And he's the first person in the New Testament of whom it's actually written that he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Those words are used of John first in the New Testament, just as they're used of Bezaliel first in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that there weren't other men or even women who were filled with the Spirit of God prior to these two men, but with regard to the written word, these are the first two of whom such a thing 
is actually said. There's another prophecy that relates to John the Baptist. Please turn to Malachi chapter 2, sorry, chapter 4. Malachi 4, last book of the Old Testament, and verse 5 and verse 6. And let's read those two verses. It says, Malachi 4, verse number 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And so, the prophet Malachi speaks of someone being sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that day comes. He goes on to say that they will turn the hearts of fathers to children and the heart of children to their fathers. Now look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 17, and notice how this prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist. Luke 1, verse 17. You see, we interpret Scripture by Scripture. And so there's that mysterious prophecy that Malachi brings about someone coming, and it says it's Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the children to the father and the fathers to the children. But who is it? Well, Luke 1, 17 answers the question. He shall go before him, that is, John the Baptist shall go before Christ in the spirit and power of Elias, which is the New Testament form of Elijah. And so, John the Baptist was a type, or sorry, was, or Elijah was a type of John the Baptist in the sense of being a spirit-filled man. And so, while the Malachi prophecy mentions Elijah, not the name John the Baptist, we find that John fulfills this prophecy according to what we have here in this Scripture in Luke 1, 17. If you will turn to Matthew chapter 17, look with me at verses 10 to 13, you find some more light in this. Matthew chapter 17, verse number 10, it says, His disciples ask Him, this is the disciples asking Christ, His disciples ask Him, saying, uh, here in verse 10, when, why then say the scribes that Elias or Elijah must first come? Now, notice that. That's a very important reference here because this means that the scribes of Israel saw and understood that Elias or Elijah would actually come before Christ would come. That's a time reference. That's very important, that Elias would come before the Lord Jesus Christ. Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things, but I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that He spake unto them of John the Baptist." So, it's very, very clear, isn't it, that in a certain way Elijah was like John the Baptist, or there's a parallel between the two. And so, 
uh, we're told that, uh, that John the Baptist would come on the power and spirit of Elijah, Luke 1, 17. Now we're told that he has, uh, in the Lord's words, here at this juncture in his life and ministry, he says, Elias has come already. He's already come. And by this time, of course, Elijah, or not Elias, but John the Baptist, who's spoken of this way under the name Elias, is dead. He's been put to death by Herod. But the disciples understood, verse 13, that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So like Elias or Elijah, John's ministry was characterized by the anointing of the Spirit. And I give you these additional scriptures that bring this out. We looked at this in the last study, that first study in John the Baptist, and we saw this, His power by the Holy Ghost. And we see it coming out again uh, with regard to these prophecies that are fulfilled in Him in terms of Elias or Elijah being a preview of John the Baptist in the sense of His power and the mighty ministry that he exercised in the days of Ahab. And remember that whenever John the Baptist came into the scene, he was serving in a day when there was another evil king on the throne, and that, of course, was Herod. And it was a Herod who got John the Baptist put to death. And so all of these little details are very, very interesting as we look at the Scriptures and, and compare the Word of God with the Word of God. John the Baptist was the New Testament Elijah. That's how you can sum it up at this point. As well as a spiritual power, however, in John there were certain marks or features of being filled with the Spirit, along with His power. And I want to look at a couple of those today. And if you look again at Luke 1, we find the first in verse number 15. And there it says this, He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, <coughs> and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. I want to say to begin with that he was a consecrated man. That is underlined by those words, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And that statement is bringing home to us the consecration of John unto God and unto his Savior even. You see, those words, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. In the first instance, they belong to the vow of the Nazarite. I want you to turn to Numbers now, and we'll stay in Numbers here a moment, and then we'll also go to uh, the book of Leviticus. But turn to the book of Numbers and the chapter 6, and look with me at verses 1 through to 3, Numbers chapter 6 and the verses 1 through to 3. And we see here a parallel with what we have just seen. So Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, For neither man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink very same words, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. So the vow of the Nazarite included 
abstinence from alcohol. That's how to put it. That's what the words mean. And so that vow was taken upon uh, men when they became uh, Nazarites and were separated unto the Lord. Uh, the word Nazarite is an interesting word in its own. It has a, a study all of its own. You might think of Samson was a Nazarite because another part of the Nazarite vow is that they were not to cut their hair, etc. Uh, some men today might think they're Nazarites, but anyhow, it's nothing to do with what goes on today. But um, anyhow, this is one outstanding feature of the vow of the Nazarite. He was not to drink wine or strong drink, to keep himself separate from that. Now, there's an additional thought here I want to bring to you. Remember that John the Baptist was from the priestly line. His father, Zacharias, his mother, Elizabeth, were both descended from Aaron, from the priestly family in Israel. So turn with me now to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, and we'll read some verses here in this chapter. Leviticus 10, verse number 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, Leviticus 10, 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And they went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now just note those two verses, Nadab and Abihu were two of the sons of Aaron, we are told that they were slain by divine fire because they offered strange fire. That's what the first two verses of Leviticus 10 tell you. It says they offered strange fire. The word strange means alien or foreign. You see, there was to be the burning of fire to the Lord, the burning of incense, and also the great altar of sacrifice had a fire on it, but God had stipulated what was to be used in the fires that were employed in the whole ceremonial system. So these two men, the sons of Aaron, they should have known better because they transgressed terribly. It says they offered strange fire before the Lord, and verse 2 tells us they went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. So they offered fire that was not in keeping with the mind of God, and for that God smote them and they died. Now the question arises, why did they do this? Why did they offer strange fire? What, what was wrong with them? Because God had expressly forbidden such a thing. So why did they do it? Go down to verse 10. Sorry, verse number uh, eight, I should say. Leviticus 10 and verse number eight. It says, And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean and that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. So we find that not only were the Nazarites forbidden to drink wine and strong drink, so also were the priests. Now here's the point. In Leviticus 10, this commandment forbidding the drinking of wine and strong drink 
by the priestly family came in on the wake or against the background of Nadab and Abihu being slain for offering strange fire. And the inference to me is that they did that, Nadab and Abihu, because they were drunk. Because as soon as this all happens, this law comes in that the priest is not to drink wine or strong drink. It says, lest ye die. And two priests had just died for offering strange fire. But the point is, why were they so careless? Why were they so reckless? Why did they do this when it was forbidden by God to offer strange fire or a fire that He had not ordained in terms of the kind of fire that was to be offered in the tabernacle? And I am suggesting to you, and I do it very strongly because I believe it with all my heart, it's because they were intoxicated. You see, in the Bible, drunkenness is classified as one of the works of the flesh. That's in Galatians 5, uh, those verses that talk about uh, the fruit of the Spirit. But before you get to the fruit of the Spirit, you find toward the end of, of, of Galatians 5, where Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit, he also lays down very clear directives as to the fact that there are certain works of the flesh that stand out, and one of them is drunkenness. And so, it's a work of the flesh, but more than that, it's the opposite of being under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul brings that out in Ephesians 5.18. Remember what he says, and I've preached that verse in the past, and some of you might remember uh, the message, but if you don't, it doesn't matter. But that verse says this, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. And the word excess refers to a, an uncontrolled state. It doesn't mean drinking too much. It says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. The word excess uh, could be used in that way, and we use it might we might use it in everyday life. But in the Bible, there in Ephesians five eighteen, it doesn't mean uh, that. It means the results of drunkenness. Be not drunk with wine, wherein that is, as a result of which there will be dissolution, there will be carelessness, there will be lack of control, there will be disorder. It's the very word that's used in the life of the prodigal son in Luke 15. He spent all his uh, money in riotous living. The word riotous is the same Greek word as the word excess. And so it could well be that the prodigal son, along with living with harlots, he was a drunkard, and he wasted his whole wealth and all that the Father had given him. And all these verses are tied together, brethren and sisters. And I know that with regard to the Nazarite, with regard to the priest, those offices no longer are in existence. But there's a principle taught there. And the principle is this, that people who give themselves to drink, strong drink alcohol, immediately place themselves in a situation where they're no longer in control. Nadab and Abihu were not in control of themselves. They offered strange fire. They were smitten dead. And then the Nazarite was to be a man in control of himself. 
And so he wasn't to touch and buy strong drink or wine, stay away from it. And I know there's all the arguments that are raised today, even in church circles. Oh, there's nothing wrong with taking a glass of wine or whatever they say. And moderate drinking, they call it now. Social drinking, they call it. My dear friend, every drunkard started to be a drunkard with one first drink. Total abstinence is the way to go. Young people here today, you take note of that. Yes, we're not under the vows of the Nazarites or the priests anymore in that sense. But to me, the Word of God is very, very clear in this. And, of course, life's experiences clarify it too. And that when people start to drink and it gets, uh, it gets into their system, they can't stop drinking and and all the rest of it, and then they become reckless, and they do not only silly things, but they become a danger to themselves and to others, and we're, we're all aware of that. All society can tell people, as they try to control folk who drink, is do it in moderation. And yet, at the same time, the government, the same government who will tell them that, gives them money to buy drink. And the whole thing is crazy. Now, that's really an aside from what I wanted to say today, but I felt I had to deliver this because what I'm saying to you is, if you want to be a consecrated Christian, live a life that abstains from fleshly lusts, and one of them is the imbibing of alcohol. Paul says, be not drunk with wine. It leads to riot is living. Rather, be under the control of the Holy Spirit. The, point, the, the thought in his words is very clear. A drunk man has lost control, but a Spirit-filled person is a controlled person, controlled by the Holy Ghost, walking with God and serving the Lord. And so, all of this biblical data makes it clear that John the Baptist was a consecrated man, and that's of what we, where we started out there and looking at those words, turn back please to Luke 1, uh, those words, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And I think that's very remarkable language. Great in the sight of the Lord, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Now, if you turn to Mark 6, I want to bring you there to a very important passage about John the Baptist and his consecration to the Lord. Mark chapter 6 and the verse number 14. And you will know the story, most of you here, it's the occasion when John was martyred. Read about that in Mark chapter 6, and down there in verse 27 you've got the precise verse where you read of the martyrdom of John. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought and he went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel, and the damsel gave it to her mother. There's the end of the story, so to speak, of the life of John the Baptist. He was still only a man of 30. He ministered only for six months. We can work it out. He's the forerunner of the Lord. He had a mighty ministry in those six months. He turned multitudes to the Lord. But here's how his days closed. 
And so, from verse 14 of Mark 6, we read on down these verses, and we find something coming out that is remarkable. This is a remarkable passage, and I want you to look at, at it with me, because it's remarkable in the sense of its presentation of the fact of John's personal purity or holiness of life. Now, verse 17 tells us this. just want to go to verse 17 to begin with. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Now, this is some time in the past, in those six months when John was ministering. I mean, sometimes before, sometime obviously before his death. So, verses 17 and 18 is in the past tense and takes us back into previous months. And John had imprisoned, or sorry, Herod had imprisoned John because John had rebuked Herod. Because Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife, he had married her, and John told him, it's not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Now, we don't know all the details here, but the point is that Herod was an adulterer. And here we see that John fearlessly rebuked Herod for his sin, and Herodias as well. And Herodias from that day onwards had her knife in John and wanted rid of John the Baptist because he had exposed her sin as well as Herod's sin, had rebuked her, and she couldn't take it. And she had him put to death in a very sly and cunning way, as we, as we know when we, when we read the story. So, this is a mark of John's consecration. He was a fearless man. He loved God. He loved His law. He loved that which is holy, and therefore he told Herod to his face that what he had done was wrong. It's not lawful for thee, he said to Herod, to have thy brother's wife. And so we'll not go into the details of what actually had happened because we're not really shown all the details. But he was a fearless man. The second thing about John that we notice in this passage is he was not only a fearless man, he was a feared man. Look at verse 19. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. He was a feared man, but in the right sense. It wasn't that John was one of these boisterous characters who struts about and, and a bully. That's not the kind of man John was. That's not why Herod feared him. You know why Herod feared him? Because John was godly, and John was holy. And John's life was a rebuke to Herod, and put a fear into Herod where he wouldn't touch him. You see, Herodias, as soon as John had rebuked the both of them for their sin, Herodias wants to kill him right away. But Herod stands in the way because it tells us here, if you look at it, how verse 20 begins, well, in fact, how verse 19 ends, she would have killed him, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Why did he fear him? 
knowing that he was a just man and unholy. You see, men and women, notice that. Ungodly men will have a respect for holy men. I mean, truly godly men. And, and that has been seen in the experience of the saints down through time. And this is an example. Ungodly men like Herod, he was an adulterer. He was, he was living in an, an illicit relationship with a, a woman who had been another man's wife. And I believe that the story probably is that uh, Herod's brother Philip, that's his name, uh, and this woman Herodias weren't actually free to marry, put it that way. And therefore, this was all unlawful in the sight of God. But the point is that John the Baptist, at the same time, though he rebuked Herod, Herod had respect for him. He knew him to be a just man and a holy man. Notice those two words. He was a just man and unholy. See, the two go together. A justified man, you could read it that way. But how did, John, how did Herod know that John the Baptist was righteous before God, that is, justified, because he was also holy in life? Note that, brethren and sisters, consecration to God is not only the fact that we are justified by God in that legal sense and declares us righteous, but it includes also the outward de declaration of it, the, de the declarative righteousness or holiness that's in the life of a Christian, where people looking on can see, not that the person's perfect, there's nobody perfect as a Christian, but they can see the evidence of grace, they can see the evidence of godliness, they can see the evidence of holiness. And though they keep on sinning, oh, they will have a respect. Now, this is demonstrated in different ways. I know people who have told me, Christians, that they went to work in a certain place and everybody was cursing and swearing and, and, and using vile language. And this individual would have said, and people have told me this, don't use that language because it offends me. And the next day they go back into work and these things have happened and do happen even yet. And maybe you've experienced it. The Christian goes back into work and somebody lets a swear word slip out. And they always say, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry for saying that in front of you. You see, my friend, the ungodly know that they're doing wrong. They know that swearing and blasphemy and filthy conversation is sin and a holy life rebukes them and is a check to them. You know, one of the marks of a fallen society is swearing. Swearing, cursing, blaspheming, the language of man is filthy. But live a life that's consecrated to God and God will use that to cause even a Herod to have a, a, a respect for you. Uh, says here fear, but it's really reverence or this restraint. He wouldn't touch John because he knew he was a, holy, a, a just man and a holy. So he was a feared man. And then he was a favored man. You see this all coming out in Mark 6. This is all about his consecration. He was a favored man. 
He was favored with great likeness to Christ. Now, I said this earlier when I drew to your attention that John is a child and Christ is a child, that the same words are used of them. They, 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 they grew in favor with God, etc. There in, in Luke, you find the two references. But here's another evidence of this, how like Christ John actually was. Look at verse 14 now. And King Herod heard of him, that is, he heard of Christ, for his name was spread abroad. Now listen carefully to this. Notice it. And he that is Herod said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. And so the reference is to Christ. That's how the account here begins in verse 14. The earlier verses are recording something about the Lord's ministry and, and so forth. And then Herod heard about this person. And immediately Herod concluded, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And so think about that with me for a moment or two. Herod was convinced that the one who ministered, namely Christ, was actually John the Baptist. What inference do you draw from that? And it's very obvious, Christ and John were very alike. Or to put it another way, John had been a very Christ-like man. And so when the Lord did come along and began to minister publicly and openly, Herod said, this has to be John the Baptist. He has come back from the dead because this person and John the Baptist, that is Christ and John the Baptist, are very alike. That's what Herod noticed. That's what Herod saw. And therefore, John had been a very Christ-like man. My friend, there's true holiness. True holiness has been like the Lord. You see, people have ways of, of uh, trying to estimate what holiness is. And they will say that a Christian, just taking Christians I mean, and they'll say that now Christians, you'll know that they're holy or, they're, or, or they demonstrate their holiness because of the way they dress. And of course, Christians should dress in such a way that people know that they are Christians. And I just want you to get that into your mind this morning because if we dress like the world, well, the world will think they're no different from us. And so it's not that we dress ourselves up to make ourselves Christians, but we should dress in a certain way that is the demonstration that we are Christians. And you know, when I was growing up, and you, some of you were growing up, that's the way it was. Christian men and Christian women were very careful as to how they dressed. They did not want to give the appearance that they were of the world. And so, the way the world dressed, it was not their style. Now, there, that's, a whole, that's a whole subject on its own. I can't go into that today, but I just draw your attention to that, that uh, true, true holiness is, it starts within, it works its way out, it does affect how we dress, it affects how we 
uh, speak. It affects how we conduct ourselves. It affects where we go and do not go. It affects the company that we keep. All of that is the outworking of the holiness of a person's heart or the inward likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, when you look at the Word of God, this comes out very, very clearly. What is the will of God for a Christian? It is to be like Christ. Romans 8 and 29 says it. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's likeness to Christ. And brethren and sisters, that's the nature of true sanctification. Sanctification does work its way out, as I already said, into a person's life. And I make it may take time for people to get a hold of this. If you take someone who's just saved out of the world and they don't know how to dress or how to behave at the first like a Christian, and some people might sit in condemnation over them and judge them. But after a while they begin to see and they begin to understand and they begin to realize, I don't want to look like the world or act like the world. I want to be like the Lord. And so their lives are changed. Sanctification does affect the, in, the outward man, but it begins in the inward man. And so those who are mature Christians should pray for those who are young in the faith and who have things to learn and seek to guide and set an example and not criticize, but actually lead them along step by step as much as, they, as, as we possibly can. So it's an inward matter this matter of, of true likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, very clearly, the predominant matter, the, the predominant pattern is seen in Scripture uh, that where there is the infilling of the Holy Spirit, holiness of life will mark that life. You can't be filled with the Holy Ghost. You can't be controlled by the Holy Ghost and not set forth through holiness and how you talk, how you behave, as I said, your conduct. Young people take that on board as well as older folks. Young people are especially very impressionable. The world wants you to think that that's the way to behave in terms of its, all these things, dress, behavior, where you go. And if you don't follow the world, you're outdated or you're not going to enjoy yourself. You're just, an, uh, you're just a bundle of misery. And nothing could be further from the truth. I thank God for young fellows and young girls in our own church who love the Lord, who are walking with God, who are enjoying their Christianity, praying in the prayer meetings, living for the Savior, and keep it at, keep at, keep at it, keep it up, young person. Don't be intimidated by a filthy, ungodly world or some Christ is wretch at work or at school who laughs at you, who mocks you. Don't worry about that. Just keep following the Lord and living for God. But this is the point. The mark of the infilling of the Spirit is consecration, godliness and holiness of life. You read, for example, of the men who wrote the Old Testament. You know how they're described in, by Peter in 2 Peter 1? Holy men of God holy men of God, set apart to the Lord for His glory and for His 
honor. And notice here, back in Luke chapter 1, 15, what it says there at the start of verse 15, He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. There is God's estimation of John the Baptist. Now, John was a very plain man. His garment was camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, he maybe ate more than that, but the point is that the view that we are given of John in life was that he was a man who was apart from earthly uh, matters in terms of even, yes, how he dressed and, and, and what he consumed. But it was all because of what God had done in his heart and in his life. And the Lord saw him as someone who was great. There is the fact that John was one of heaven's favorites. Great in the sight of the Lord. If you'll turn quickly, by our time is gone, uh, turn quickly to Matthew 11 and verse 11. Just notice what the Lord says about John the Baptist there. Matthew 11, verse 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. There hasn't risen a greater than John. That's a tremendous commendation. Taking the Old Testament here, that's what the Lord's saying there in that first part of that verse. There hasn't risen a greater than John the Baptist. A consecrated man. So we've, that's as far as we've got today. I was going to say something else here, but time is now gone, so we'll have to come back to it in the next study in the will of the Lord. And what I wanted to show you was, he not only was a consecrated man, but he had a Christ-centered ministry. But we'll come back to that point in another study. But take this in and let's pray over it. Let's ask the Lord to make us like Him and to be conformed to His image. Let's have a word of prayer as we come to a close. Father in heaven, use Thy Word and press it upon our hearts. We pray for our young as well as older saints that Thou wilt bless them and Thou wilt lead them on and Thou wilt make them godly and cause them to exhibit likeness to Christ. Oh, Lord, may that be the mark of each one of us. We lament that it's not as strong as we'd want it to be, but, Lord, work it on in as we pray, and conform us to the image of the Savior. Be with us now, blessed throughout the rest of this morning, the prayer time and to the worship service. Oh, Lord, may Your hand be on us for good, and may the Holy Spirit be poured out, we pray. We ask this all for Jesus' sake and for His glory. Amen. Amen.